In fact, <clears throat> I'd like to go into that a bit. First off, welcome to everyone, but are there any, any people here for the very first time? Can I have a show of hands? And of those people, are, are any of you, is there anyone who's really never done anything resembling this practice? You really knew, just new to all this stuff. Okay, uh, this is uh, <clears throat> taking the refuges, refuges and precepts, is a very ancient uh, form. It goes way back, in fact, it's modeled after a time uh, thousands of years before the Buddha in ancient India. Um, <clears throat> refuge meant you take refuge in a patron for protection. It could be a god, it could be a particular prince, be a little bit like if you've seen The Godfather. <laughs> you, take, you take refuge and you do certain things and in return you're uh, protected from something. Okay. Um, the Buddha didn't start this actually. What his disciples did. Some of his disciples who grew up with this culture of taking refuge. It's sometimes called for example, the first will be the refuge will be the triple gem. Um, <clears throat> and that the image of a gem is a very ancient one as well. Uh, a gem was considered extremely valuable. In some ways, it still is considered valuable. But it was also often thought of as, a, as having protective power. That as you had certain gems, it would protect you from danger. So this is called a gem supposedly, and you know, some of you may have had an inkling that there may be some truth in this, and if you're very new, just listen to it, hear what's being said. Uh, you don't have to commit yourself to anything this evening. Um, it's said that this is the supreme gem. It goes way beyond a physical jewel in terms of how valuable it is and how much how it can protect you. Um, when <clears throat> it was taken over, when the disciples offered it, they gave it a particularly Buddhist twist. So it was no longer um, seeking, it's not seeking the, the, the Buddha as a personal, like a Don in the Godfathers. It's not like, if I believe in you, Buddha, will you protect me from things? It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. Uh, the Buddhist, uh, Buddha Dharma is a non-theistic approach to living. For some, it's called a religion. Some would say the Dalai Lama has interestingly said it's kind of like a religion, but not really. It's kind of like science, but not really. It's kind of like philosophy, it's, but not really. It's kind of like psychology, it's not really. So uh, I'm more comfortable calling it a dharma. It's a way, it's a, a lawfulness, the way things are, the way the universe works. And that's both on every level. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so if it's a non-theistic religion, uh, then there isn't even a God that's going to protect you. And if the Buddha can't protect you, well, then what, what's this all about? Um, what I'm going to discuss the refuges and the precepts a bit, and then um, some of you may wish to take it, some not, and I'll make some suggestions, including some hints as to whether you should take it or not. For example, I wouldn't. If I just walked in the door 
and heard you know people selling me this stuff that's going to protect you and all the rest of it, I would actually I'd be gone a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good you have faith. Uh, <clears throat> actually, when I first uh, stumbled, and it was that's an accurate word, coming into different Buddhist situations. And when uh, refuges and precepts were, especially the precepts, uh, that, uh, I immediately was ready to leave because I felt uh, I had already had enough of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, God, thou shalt, and it comes down from God. And, uh, and I go home and my father say, it's just a bunch of baloney, but just do it. This is in a Jewish faith. Do it, get bar mitzvah so that your grandparents will get out of my hair and your mother will leave me alone. <laughs> Um, so I did it, hated every minute of it, but I got through. Uh, but it was pummeled into us, pounded into us, and my, my Catholic friends would say the same things. So is this, it's, but these are not meant to be commandments when we get to the uh, precepts. Let's start with the refuges first. Let's take the word. Uh, start with just the world. Forget about uh, giving it any Buddhist implications. A refugee. Uh, it's hardly an evening when you watch the news. There isn't some refugee camp. What, what is a refugee? It means it's somebody who has gotten out of some place that's dangerous, uh, a horrible place, and has taken refuge in, very, in another country, another place. Uh, I was in the Army of Occupation after World War II, uh, occupation of Germany, and met lots of refugees. Uh, including a fair number who were Holocaust survivors who were in the military, in the American Army. And some were really not cut out to be soldiers. It was just painfully obvious. And I said, well, why, why, why would you join? The, if they joined the Army for five years, automatic American citizenship. I don't know if that's true anymore. And they said, well, we can't go back to our country. We can't go back to Poland, Russia, Germany, etc." And Everyone wants, wanted to go to the United States or Canada, uh, some, many Jews to Israel. It was, yes, it was formed. Uh, so I got to know them, and the quality of desperation of, uh, of uh, having lived in a dangerous place and knowing it, not necessarily, you know, sometimes we're in places, if you don't feel like you need to take refuge, full speed ahead, if you have a nice life, and what are we talking about? Take refuge from what? You just like what you're doing already. Not that you have to give that up. And we'll get to that. It's a very subtle point. Uh, what is refuge from what? And how do you? And what is it that's going to protect us finally? So what I saw was uh, here were these, for example, up close. I got to know some of these refugees really well. Strictly speaking, they were refugees in that they were in the American Army, which is part of America, and they were doing it really not cut out for it and committed to five years. Uh, that's how motivated they were. But they uh, had a hard time with the language, uh, the culture, military culture, not just American culture, and were willing to do all these things that they weren't comfortable with just to get to some place that promised to be safe. Uh, of course, there's an even larger question. Is there any security at all in life? Is there? any. In other words, there are lots of things that promise it, insurance companies and so forth. Uh, and if you have a home and mortgages paid, that's nice. 
is relative security. But we, if you look at it in a profound way, you know that finally, you can't, everything is uncertain. Everything is changing and uncertain. It's not simply that things are changing, but they change in ways that are uncertain. We just do not own what's happening. So we're not in charge. Person is welcome. Oh, yeah. Let's not stare as she walks in. <laughs> I know her. I can get away with it. Um, so is there any place, and we'll get to this at the very end, if you stick it out, there is actually some good stuff at the end. <laughs> but if you're very new, it's going to sound like uh, this is really baloney. But okay. Um, so a refuge is someplace safe, ideally. It's a place that we get to that can take care of us and take us out of uh, a place that's very, very dangerous. In, in order to even want to come to a place like this, you have to feel that you're in danger. And sometimes people are so wedded, and I think that's the right word, to a place that's dangerous that they, it's so difficult for them to leave uh, and to become a refugee, you see some of that in Syria now, where people hang on for so long and often pay an enormous price. Uh, there's one story I recall from the, again, from the Holocaust. There was a, a Jewish actor, and he and his family had escaped to Switzerland. And then there was a part that he wanted to, uh, this was just prior to Hitler coming into power. Uh, and he hadn't received notice whether he'd gotten the part in a certain play or not. And while he was in Switzerland, he got notice that he was accepted for the part in the play. And he went back to Switzerland and died in the camps. So it's a tricky thing. Now, what does that have to do with coming here? Well, it, there's a different language here, too. And we, if, you, if you come here, we're going to make you sit still. <laughs> do, have you figured that out yet? <laughs> okay. And you may hear things that you don't like. And from people who don't seem creditable. You know, I, I'm not from Asia. I have, uh, look at my, I don't have robes. I have just uh, sweatpants. And <laughs> from Brooklyn, how could there be anything spiritual coming out of Brooklyn? Okay, <laughs> uh, so when I first came upon this, um, I was very, very skeptical, and I, and I just felt I'm not going through this again. The Ten Commandments was enough. Uh, when we get to the, to the precepts, I'll describe why it's very, very different. Uh, first off, they're not commandments. Um, and it's good if you have skepticism. That's a very healthy quality that you should have. It's encouraged by the Buddha. I mean, it's encouraged by anyone who has any intelligence. Don't, there's a lot of things in life that are doubtful. It doesn't mean cynical. It means take a look. Don't check your intelligence at the door when you walk into places like this. Use your intelligence and common sense. Okay, let's get to uh, the refuges. So, um, the refuge is, uh, what, if you take the refuges today, what would you be doing? You would, no one's going to check on you. Uh, and I, no one's going to be spying on you and are you sitting for 40 minutes every day or uh, it's nothing like that it's your commitment basically to yourself that you're going to take on to guide your living the teachings of the Buddha 
and we'll find out what that means. Uh, that, that means that you've seen enough value in it that you want to enter into that paradigm, that frame of reference, commit yourself to that as a guide to how to live your life. And uh, just doing that sometimes emotionally can have tremendous power. Uh, the, of, of course, as you practice, if you see evidence that indeed it is worthwhile doing, then your commitment will be stronger. To begin with, many of us have done it with very little uh, actual evidence. In other words, sometimes people think there's no, no room for faith in the, the Buddhist teaching. There is, but it's tentative. It's not that you have to, if you're a person of faith, then you're in. If you have no faith, you're out. Uh, you have to tentatively have some conviction that perhaps there's something here that's valuable. And unless you give it a try, how will you find out? You have to verify that uh, these teachings are something, uh, when put into practice, uh, that actually can serve as a refuge, can actually be a protection. And then from what? Well, we'll get to that. Okay, so let's, uh, you know what, I think I'm going to, it's beautifully put by the Buddha, and then everything, uh, the whole evening will be around this, really. This comes from the Dhammapada, 188 to 192. They go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge. That's not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering. But when having gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, you see with right discernment, clear seeing, insightful seeing, the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there's a transcending or a cessation of suffering, and there's a way to accomplish all this, and that's the eight, a path. In other words, there's a, a, a set of uh, guidelines are laid out, including methods. That's the secure refuge. That's the supreme refuge. That is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering. Um, okay, so the first, may as well use the, outline, the, uh, the same sheet you have. Um, no, it's all you don't need. I actually didn't want to, these to be handed out because I felt uh, it'd be better. I'll be chanting it and you can just listen carefully and repeat it, but it's, you, you can take it home. Um, the first one is taking refuge in the Buddha. Okay, what does that mean? Does it mean that we worship this chap up here? I don't think so. That's just a representation of something. Uh, you can, now there are people who do pray to Buddhas. If you go to Asia, just as people uh, pray to crosses and other uh, um, expressions of religiosity and holiness. Uh, now that doesn't mean you might know that, that is a, there isn't anyone inside that, you know, that these are, by the way, these are made by the thousands in factories for American tourists. I don't know if, maybe they've cut it down to the hundreds now. But anyway, there they are. Uh, but that can open you up internally to a sincere uh, gratitude that there was someone who attained awakening, who actually woke up. That's what the Buddha means, is someone who woke up. 
I, don't, I prefer awakening to enlightened. Enlightened gets too um, mixed up with the age of enlightenment, meaning someone who knew everything, tremendous knowledge, and uh, it's awakening, fully awakening. And a Buddha, that's an, it's a, a name of, in other words, it's a state, it's a, a, a quality. And the teachings are qualities of mind and ways to wake up. That's what Vipassana means, insight, seeing into. So, okay, is, are we taking refuge in the historical Buddha? There, there was a person, we read his biography, and there are many biographies. Some, they're all quite different. If you read the one by Thich Nhat Hanh, it sounds, he'll excuse me, but I told him this, so. Uh, it sounds like if Thich Nhat Hanh were the Buddha, this is what, how it would read. But it's the same with all the others. They're just very different versions, because we weren't there, we don't know. Thousands of years, it's a combination, a blend of myth and history. No doubt there was someone who, who was alive in ancient India who broke through at an extraordinarily deep level and said, you can too. Said, it's not something that, uh, I'm not a god, I'm not an avatar, I'm just a human being, you can wake up too. And gave us some help, offered some help. Uh, now, that can be emotional, that is, you, uh, you read this, maybe read a, a biography or a story of the life of the Buddha. Uh, in my own case, I went through a very anti-religious period, which was quite a few years. The only thing, I go to museums, I couldn't even look at religious art. I just felt it's all nonsense, belonging to Jesus, any religion. It was, I was uh, universally against all of them. But when I would see a, a Buddha a replica, a Buddha statue, a Buddha image, sometimes, especially in some of the museums, it was such extraordinary ones that the person who sculpted it, where they must have been, it got through to me. It wasn't in words, and I, that was the only thing that caught my attention. And then I didn't linger, but I just felt moved by just a human being in repose with a very subtle kind of contentment and joy. Uh, and my life was anything but that extremely hectic, very ambitious, etc., etc. Uh, in other words, I was a, n a normal American guy. Uh, so sometimes uh, you kind of can have an intuitive, gain some strength simply by that reflection. Now, is that going to be enough? I don't think so. I doubt it. At a certain point, there's just so much you can get from identifying with someone uh, and, and then allowing your own imagination and yearnings uh, to fill you up and help you to feel the strength that you need to get through the day. So it's not a complete waste of time. So, but that isn't, that's, that's on one level. So it's not the statue, certainly. It's not the historical figure, uh, the Buddha's not, is dead. The Buddha's been dead for pushing 3,000 years. How is he supposed to help us? He's a dead guy. Does that hit you? The Buddha's dead. <laughs> he solved his problem, sounds like it. But he's not going to solve ours. He's inviting us to solve our own problems. In fact, that's a core value that you'd, you have to take responsibility for yourself. The law of cause and effect. Karma, if you want a fancy word for it. That is... Oh, we're getting to that. Many of you already know this. Um, 
So let's go a little bit deeper. So it isn't a statue, it isn't the inspiration. That's good, but it's not enough. So then what more can there be? Well, finally, it's that quality of mind that is called buddhi or bodhi or budo, which is budo is one is a, t a term that, and it would be awake exclamation point might be a translation. It's one possible translation. Awake exclamation point. Uh, so that 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 mind state it's said that it's available to us, and that there's help extended to us if we want to take it. To uh, that's where you're taking you're taking refuge in the Buddha. That's what that means. Uh, that's we're getting a little deeper now. Now that last one, of course, is pointing at the deepest, which is what comes out of, of real meditation. And we'll we'll get to that. I keep saying we'll get to things. <laughs> I'm using up time. We'll never get to it. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. How about taking refuge in the Dharma? Okay, if you're very new, what does that mean? Well, let's just say it can be the teachings of the Buddha. Now, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, uh, th there are three, the way, uh, uh, the way the Buddhist education is presented to us, it's a, a, a guideline, it's a kind of education, self-re-education, adult ed. This is adult ed. <laughs> CIMC is adult ed. Uh, well, not just adults. All ages are welcome, but I see mostly adults. Uh, so the, the Dharma, in one sense, are verbal teachings. You're getting some of it tonight from me. Uh, it's in books now. It's in videos and, and tapes and um, teachers, of course. And these are, it's a conceptual step ladder, a ladder, a rope ladder that's being passed down to us. If you want to take refuge, uh, understand these teachings. So first it's presented to us. Do we understand the words? And then conceptually, do we understand what it's really getting at? Or is it just words? Are we willing to uh, make sure that we really understand what's being said in whatever language it's taught? Because uh, you can't go any further if you don't really get it. And if you have questions and you, you ask the teacher or you find some someone who knows more than you do to try to clarify what the verbal teachings are maintaining. And then the next step is granted you've accomplished that to your satisfaction, then uh, can you uh, then put it into practice? In other words, that's why meditation in authentic Buddha Dharma, the contemplative life is essential. If you removed meditation from Buddhism, we can call it a religion if you like for tonight, if you removed it, if you took that out, then it's no different than any other religion. In fact, in some ways, maybe not as helpful. Catholics are much better at helping the poor. Jews are very good at helping each other. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm I can say it. I'm allowed to. If you say it, it's anti-Semitism. <laughs> okay. Okay. I keep distracting myself. Okay. So we're in... Um, Dharma. Okay, so uh, Dharma would be to take it on as a practice and to begin to see, in fact, 
is what has been maintained verbally, conceptually, uh, an inter interaction like this. Uh, when I put it into practice, do I find that um, there is less stress in my life, that I'm suffering less, that perhaps there's a bit more kindness, sensitivity, uh, etc. A lot of very good qualities are promised to come out of meditation. Now, if you remove meditation from uh, the, what is presented, all, and it's really Buddhism's, because if you go from India, even in India, it's such variation over the centuries, and then Tibet, China, Vietnam, etc., Cambodia, uh, Thailand, Burma, and so forth, they're different Buddhisms. There's something in common, the Four Noble Truths, but some of them are very, very different from each other, uh, and there's enough in common so that it can be held together, but some of it is quite different. Okay, so uh, those, all of that can be very, very helpful, and if you put it into practice, but if that were eliminated, I mean actual meditation, not words about meditation, if you remove that, there'd be nothing special about Buddhism. What is special about it, in my opinion, is that there's a contemplative technology that's been protected and kept alive for thousands of years. I would say all the great religions have had it. They've had it. I mean, they've had it. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, th there's always been a mystical tradition, the inner teachings and so forth, secret teachings and so forth. In Buddhism, it's r really, it's all open. The Buddha said, I teach with an open hand. Nothing hidden. Do it and find out. Uh, but a lot of it's been lost. Uh, there are rabbis who come here. There are Orthodox Jews who come here. I, I speak to them. They want to learn this stuff. It's okay with me. There's nothing in these teachings that forbid that. Not at all. Everyone's welcome. Uh, why? There were Catholic Zen masters, monks. I met some of them. In other words, they are ordained um, monks, in the, uh, fully recognized Catholics who've done years in Japan and mastered uh, certain schools of Zen, and they're recognized as Zen masters. Uh, when I was in Korea, uh, I studied there I, for five years, but I was there for one year in this main monastery. One monastery was my main place. And that the monk who I work with a lot, who was most helpful, he never heard of Judaism. He, he didn't know anything about anything, really, except he was glowing with radiant health, happiness. He thought the world was flat, uh, <laughs> etc. He was illiterate, literally. Uh, so when it was time to go home, he thought I was a Christian. I wasn't going to get involved in all that. I, I had a hard enough time trying to convince him the world is not flat. I could not do it. Uh, so he said, when you get back, uh, if, if there's resistance, this was a long time ago, he says, just tell them this is Christianity. In other words, there was no, in, there was no, there was no investment in it. Now, that doesn't mean all Buddhists are like that. There are, there are missionary Buddhists who are just very much, uh, in fact, some of the scenes that I visited when I started uh, shopping, looking around at different Buddhist centers, I felt they were like recruiting sergeants. They just want to take the refuges in the precepts. I don't, even know, I, don't, I don't even know why I'm here. That's all right. Take the refuges in the precepts. Good for you. You know, um, that is not the attitude here. In fact, if you have a lot of questions about it, I would say you don't even have to ask a question. Don't take it. Uh, Take it when you have, for whatever reason, some degree that it's sincere and authentic for you. There's no point. Why, uh, why put more baggage into your already crowded brain? 
you know, that's gonna, not going to mean very much. Maybe you'll have a little bit of feeling belonging. I'm a Buddhist. You know, uh, if you want that, it makes you feel good. No one's going to stop you. But we're not trying to add a number of. In other words, if the world has more Buddhists, it'll be a better world. I don't know. <laughs> There's some Buddhists doing a lot of killing over in Burma, in Sri Lanka. It's probably the least violent of all the religions, based historically. There's no question. It, it seems to be. Okay. Um, So the contemplative part is crucial. Now, uh, the, the third refuge is the Sangha. That's uh, tricky. That's us. That's the community. The community of like-minded practitioners. But if you take the traditional meaning, the Sangha has many nuances to it. One, it's the deepest meaning is all those who've had a glimpse of the deathless. Deathless? What does that mean? What is being maintained is that uh, through meditation, you can tap something, whether you can call it the unborn, the deathless, or the unconditioned. There's something, and we'll get to that, here I go again, but uh, finally there is something that, uh, that is aware of all this coming and going, all this change. What is that? And how, what does that have to do with me? Okay, so if you've had a glimpse of the deathless, means an opening, you, that you know it, this teaching is really pointing to something that's quite real. It's not romantic. And uh, it's sometimes called uh, nirvana. Uh, you know, whether you're samsara is the world of illusion, and then there's nirvana, which is uh, the world of enlightenment or awakening. And even here, you get a lot of differences. I've had teachers who, when they get through, uh, nirvana is like another place, like another planet. You know, sort of, in other words, we're in samsara. Let's assume for the moment, safe, that we're all in the world of illusion, all of us, uh, and we're in samsara. But a higher teaching, in my opinion, is saying there's no difference. Samsara and, and nirvana are the same thing. Samsara, and now it's become samsara has been taken to mean some romantic, you know, perfumes named samsara, like with fireworks and going off. In a, uh, I'm sorry, nirvana is. Uh, so samsara is the world of this endless churning of greed, hatred, and delusion, suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion, suffering, again and again, and in this teaching, life after life, after life, no relief. And so what's being said is there is, is a way out. But it's, I would say the deepest teaching for me is it's all internal. In other words, samsara nirvana, you are samsara and you are nirvana in other words it's not like it's a different place it, one good image for it is what ice and water to begin with ice and water are they the same or different well you melt the ice and it's water well is that the same or different you figure that one out But so that the mind an unexamined mind seething with yearnings and ambition and unfulfillment and many, many wounds from childhood and from adulthood and with unbounded cravings and attachments and aversions, you're, you're in samsara, you're suffering. It's a world of wanting and not getting or getting and not being able to hold on to. And nirvana is freeing yourself from that. In other words, the suffering is ours. We make the suffering and we also free ourselves. We're, it's all here. It's a one-person act for each one of us. 
if I can remember it, I've written one poem, I have no poetic ability in my life. I like it a lot, but it's, I think it's the first and last, if I can remember it. Um, where is peace of mind to be found? The second line, in the same place as sorrow. Third line, how convenient, exclamation point. Okay, because the, 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 hey, this is a good audience here. <laughs> you know, let's just have some fun tonight. Forget about the real everything. <laughs> I feel straight jacket. I have to, I have to do certain things. We have to ch chant and all, okay. Um, if you're, the, most of you have already had some meditation practice. The place that you're looking at, often if you just sit and as the mind becomes equipped to do this, it can, the mind, there's certain trainings that work if you do it, the mind becomes steadier and clearer. You can see suffering at work, and in the seeing, something happens. In the clear seeing, the suffering loses its potency. And as it more and more goes into abeyance, falls away, what's left? So it's in this, it, it, Inner peace, peace of mind, is waiting for us. It's here already. It's not beyond some. It's not beyond Mars, or it's right here. Uh, but and why are we suffering so much? Because we're the real renunciation is to stop identifying with everything that the mind is producing, and being taken as being me and my, belonging to me, or being me and belonging to me. And through clear seeing, insightful seeing, vipassana, uh, you see through that. You see into it and through it, and you find that all along, everything you've ever wanted is, it's in you. You don't, it, you have to go to India for it. It's right here. On bro three, it's not even in 331 Broadway. Wherever you go, it follows you, because it's you, and it's beyond you, of course. Okay. So, oh, we're in the Sangha, yeah. Uh, the Sangha, uh, so some people have tasted this, and there are some people who are monks and nuns. And that's considered the conventional sangha. That means it doesn't mean that they necessarily have tasted the unconditioned or the deathless. Uh, it's designed to maximize the possibilities of doing that. Uh, and we owe the monastic order a lot because they've kept protected these teachings and kept it alive. There have been lay people, too, who've done their share, but mainly it's been the monastic order that has protected it so that we have it today, that we can use it. It's been, most of the teachers I had were monks and nuns, mostly monks and they've given to us. What we're doing now is a lot of lay people, we have the energy and the yearning to do it, and we don't want to be monks or nuns. Some of you may, but most of us don't. And that's a challenge. Can we accomplish these things? And the, the Buddha would, would no doubt answer yes, because um, if you had a, the, the glimpse of the deathless, or the unconditioned, or pure awareness, is not, has nothing to do with whether you're a monk or a, or a nun or a lay person. It has to do with the quality of mind that every human is already qualified, already has it. It's just whether you've tasted it or not. Okay, so uh, Sangha has certain obvious uh, support. Just us being together here tonight, those of you who've done retreats, you know that retreats, sometimes you just hate being there. Your legs hurt and your back hurts and all your wife, you get bored and I'm sorry, you probably, just true. <laughs> Uh, I'm using reverse psychology on you. <laughs> if I put it down enough, you're going to say, this guy can be trusted. <laughs> I would not trust me. Because I'm in the business. <laughs> this is what I do. 
The only way you're going to find out, though, is you have to do it and find out for yourself. Um, but it's, a, it's helpful, certainly for most of us, maybe all of us, certainly for a certain period of time, to have like-minded people who are also committed to getting free, who are fed up with needless sorrow and needless suffering. After all, when the Buddha says, all I'm teaching is suffering the end of suffering, he's not saying that your body won't hurt, that you'll never get a disease, you'll never die. It's, he's locating the source of sorrow in the psyche. And it's, that is something that we can do something about. Uh, and it's this unusual, to me, I still don't get it, but I get it, but I don't, is that we are able, the same mind that creates the suffering is able to also see it, and in the process of seeing it insightfully and letting it go, uh, come to sanity. It's, it's all one, you're doing the whole thing. We're torturing ourselves and we can also free ourselves. And teachers, I, I can't liberate you. I'm having a hard enough time with myself. I can offer some help. Mainly, I'm presenting some of these teaching and people like myself who do this, uh, and encouragement and also helping you understand that finally you're on your own. You have the company of, of all of us. That's why places like CIMC exist. And it's good to have a, a community of people who really are, want to do this. It's very, very helpful. But finally, no one can do it for you. When the Buddha says, be a lamp unto yourself, that's the key teaching for me. When the Buddha said that, I, I knew this was for me. You, I know that. I know that I can, there's no help out there. It's not going to drop. God's not going to do it. You may believe he can. Good. Maybe he will. I don't, I don't know. Uh, statue won't do it. Uh, you have to take responsibility for yourself. In other words, it's a teaching if you, to, for grown-ups. Or if you're not, it's saying, grow up. You, you can do it, and, it's, it, and there's help. There are teachings and techniques and methods and people, all of us. So the Sangha has an important role to play in terms of supporting us. Uh, so there's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Let me just hint at something, because on an evening like this, some of you I look around, some of you may, may be fairly new, some of you have been practicing for a while. Let's say one, to, to uh, hmm. let's use this as a bridge into the precepts. It was actually the precepts that almost prevented me from having anything to do with Buddhism. Because it's, it's telling you all the should, you know, don't, do, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, no sexual, etc. And I felt I had had much more than that from the Ten Commandments. Okay, but the truth is, in the Buddhist teaching, it, they're called the three pillars. Uh, the, the Buddhist teaching is sila, samadhi, and panya. They work together. They support the teaching. Sila, the translation is, that's what the precepts are tapping. It's a kind of ethical refinement, ethical or vir the development of virtue, integrity, personal integrity. Um, uh, and that's what the, you, it'll be obvious to you, but uh, then there's various degrees, how do you implement that? Okay, so uh, the first pillar is sila, the second is samadhi, developing a stable mind. So one is ethical, one is stability of mind, 
and there are a lot of the first methods we all use here is either the breath or metta or it can be a mantra but ways of re-educating the mind so that it can be calm and steady so it's serviceable so it's fit to do what to do to gain to uh, panya insight and it's the insight which liberates us you can get very calm from a concentrated mind but then when the calm wears out you're a jerk again <laughs> just a calmer, calmer one, and even that fades out. Uh, I speak from experience as a professional jerk. Okay, so, uh, so that all these three work together so that when we get to the precepts, they're not merely commandments that come from up above, that uh, you voluntarily take it on their trainings. You voluntarily take each one on as a training in mindfulness. They're mindfulness trainings because they're alerting, to, alerting you to uh, certain ways of living that are counterproductive for a meditative life. For example, I'll give you a, a, the most extreme example I've met in my own life. When I first started practicing, I was on a retreat, and the person next to me was so tense, I could hardly be next to him. He was from Canada and he was wanted for kidnapping and extortion and uh, he was on the cushion and uh, I got to, you know during break I, I got to meet with him and he said I said well, why are you practicing Zen why are you practicing Zen he said I want to attain attain Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi that's merely complete enlightenment I'm saying shouldn't you give yourself up to the police first <laughs> And then there'll be something like a monastery, but it's called a prison. <laughs> and uh, then maybe you'll attain something like Anatarasana. So, uh, in other words, if you're lying, stealing, uh, having affairs with your uh, husband or wife's best friend, uh, etc., stoned all the time, drunk, uh, say, but I, I really want to be a good man. How can it? In other words, that is counterproductive. Is setting in waves, setting waves in motion that are exactly what we don't need because we're trying to stabilize the mind so it's calm and clear and able to see deeply and accurately. Accuracy is important. Object into itself, and that's how you get free. That's vipassana. Okay, so isolated. It sounds like commandments, but they're meant to be connected to. Uh, sometimes schematically what will be said is first you develop uh, the precepts uh, and it's good to take that on right away then out of that as the precepts as you start as you start cleaning up your as one of my teachers put it uh, put your house in order what he meant was you know all these subtle ways nothing I would go to prison for but subtle ways in which the way I was speaking this that and the other I can see the speaking part I haven't improved at all but <laughs> uh, some of the others uh, have improved a little bit okay uh, so uh, uh, improving that uh, helps the mind become more concentrated and when the mind is more concentrated then uh, it's more able to see insightfully as you're able to see more insightfully, you become more confident that this practice really is worth taking on as a refuge. Because you see it from your own experience. It's no longer borrowed. It's your own truth now. You didn't borrow it from the Buddha or any other teacher. Uh, you've seen it in your own life. 
And that's essential because then things change once you begin to see firsthand how you ha actually are not helpless. There actually are ways in which you can take care of yourself internally. Okay. Whoops. And these work together. They work. All three of them are interconnected. It's not really so sequential. Now, there's another attitude that I should make clear. Again, this is my bias. I've taken the refuges and precepts with different teachers over the many years that I've been doing this. And for some, it's an absolute. In other words, these precepts that we'll go through, it's an absolute. You, you do it 100%. It's black and white, simple. For others, and this is the one that I favor, it's more like the North Star. No one can be uh, perfect with these precepts. This is an, another approach which I share, I agree with. But the North Star, you never get there. But it gives you the right direction. You always know that you, your direction is, uh, you know, if you really want to get free, start taking a look at how you speak. Are you hurting people? Are you lying? Uh, take a look at, uh, uh, in ancient times it was defined to not have adultery for sexual misconduct. But it's more than that now. Many people are not married, but they're leaving, living together ethically and not hurting each other. I don't, you know, that, uh, that isn't taken into account. Uh, certain gender uh, issues then which were viewed a certain way, we don't view them this way. So I think the modern world has to be honored in certain ways and in other ways the, the teachings are timeless. It has nothing to do with 3,000 years ago or now because uh, people were suffering for the same reasons, greed, hatred, delusion. We're doing it again. So nothing much has changed there, but the content has. Okay, um, so uh, you'll have to make your own choice. I, the, the limitations of, t of viewing these precepts as absolutes is that you can become very, very rigid, pious, and uh, constricted and f full of guilt because you're going to break them. I'll bet you a dollar. <laughs> you, you, can't, you have to. Sometimes you just do. There may be some people uh, who don't. Uh, so now that doesn't mean that uh, now the viewing the North Star, you, in other words, giving you the right direction, that can be abused. Because then you can just start breaking and say, well, Larry said it's like the North Star, you know. <laughs> so, so that's why I'm having an affair with you because, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't have to go back to my husband, wife, lover, or whatever it is, because, okay, I departed from it, but just three or four more times, and then I'll go back. So the North Star is guiding me, but at a different pace. Okay. So that can be misused. It can now, there's something else, the literalism of it. Uh, some are very literal about it. I personally am not. Here's an ancient example, very ancient, comes from India. You're not supposed to kill. You're not supposed to lie, excuse me. So you're standing in the forest and there's a fork in the road. And a rabbit runs by and takes a left, takes a left fork in the road. A hunter comes running after it and asks you, did you see where that rabbit went? And you lie, you say it went to the right. And that way, you, you don't, because you don't want the rabbit to be killed. Well, you lied. So is that, uh, now, so that's, I think you have to take the context it's what is called skill and means. Now that can be easily abused, clearly. Now, the reason uh, one of, uh, this is crucial underpinning of all this, and then we'll go through these and then we'll 
take those who want to take it uh, can take the refuges and the precepts. Underlying all of this is conviction. What is it in the Buddhist teaching? The Buddha is saying is that all the Buddhist traditions agree on the Four Noble Truths. And crucial is faith or conviction in the law of cause and effect. That is, something skillful, if it, if it is beneficial for you and others. It's unskillful if it's harmful to you and others, both. And so by paying attention more and more, you learn to uh, see certain things, certain ways of speaking, uh, get it edited out through understanding, not because you should, because you understand that this leads to suffering. And that means you have to be able to make mistakes and learn from them. You have to be able to admit mistakes. If you can't admit mistakes, you can't learn. It's impossible. If you want to be an artist, you make mistakes. You want to be a great cook, you have to botch up a lot of uh, meals until you get it just right, anything. So, but here, many people, I, and I think men seem to have a harder time admitting mistakes. Maybe it's changing now. My generation, we never made a mistake. <laughs> just impossible, we were always right. Ask my dad. Okay, sorry dad. Or is it dad? Where I don't know. <laughs> no, no. It, it's up there. Okay. So as the mind gets clearer, it's more able to accurately see what is skillful, what indeed is beneficial, what is harmful. And more and more as the mind gets clearer, and a totally clear mind, a mind that is free of a lot of this, uh, the mind's discoloration, poison, toxin, colored by, uh, by toxins, the, gr the greedy, the wanting mind, the not wanting mind, the aggression, and the confusion in mind. When that starts to smooth out, and a little bit even, and somewhat, then it's much more able to see accurately. And so the link uh, between vipassana and behavior and between the ethical, in other words, it's one thing to take the refuge, to say I won't lie, I won't steal, to take that on as a training. It's useful. It's external. Okay. It's another thing to be able to, for it to actually be true. Look at the world. Probably most people, or many people, have had ethical training. Uh, obviously it's not enough. Uh, the world is, is full of greed, hatred, and delusion. Just turn on the news at any time. And it's every dramas, movies, it's all about that. We seem to love it, we can't have enough of it, and we do it. And let's say we've all had Sunday school and uh, synagogues and mosques or wherever you've been, uh, Hindu places, wherever. So every religion teaches this, and parents often teach this, but somehow or another it's very, we have urges in us which are stronger and break through these external, they're intended as safeguards. And I think it's a bare minimum so we can have civilization, just the bare minimum. But clearly, if you're going to enter this path, you need something more than that. And it's one thing to have this external through a commitment like tonight. It's another thing when you bring awareness into it to actually see. That's why it's a training. Am I doing it or am I not? What I just said, is that been harmful? If it's been harmful to yourself and or to others, then apologize and learn from it and move on. If it's beneficial, then this is a quality to be nourished uh, because it's a useful human quality. You see that, wow, I was able to be kind to that person and it was uh, very, very helpful. And normally I'm more restricted. 
and then you say, oh, maybe I can allow myself to be kinder. So each one of us has to learn. The degree to which our mind is clear helps the learning be the degree in which the learning is actual and the behavior is actual. It's not just what's in the mind or what comes out of our mouth, the engineering of sound, but it's also how we behave with each other. And, okay, so let's get to... So what would you do? Would you tell the hunter where... I myself would tell the hunter that it went right. I don't know what you would do. Can I have a show of hands see who the killers are here? <laughs> So it's undertaking the precept to refrain from killing, uh, killing living creatures. I'm not going to go into too much detail. A lot of this we already have had it since childhood. Uh, I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given, stealing. And it can be subtle kinds of stealing. I undertake the precept, or it could be the training, training rule or training guideline, to refrain from using sexual energies unwisely. I undertake the precept to refrain from harmful speech, uh, lying, distorting, uh, etc. And I undertake the precept to refrain from the misuse of alcohol and drugs. Uh, now, on your thing, there added some positive qualities, and it says to practice caring for my body and my mind. Uh, I'm just going to deal with that one very, very briefly. If you're a monastic, let's say in the Theravadan tradition, which is this center is rooted in that tradition, if you're a monastic, uh, you don't have much choice as to what you're going to eat. Now, more and more we know that what we ingest, the ancients knew this, it's now a new breakthroughs, new diets every other day it seems, uh, all convincing, all but have loads of research backing it up and have different conclusions. Um, if you have no choices or very little choices to what you're going to eat, what you can drink and eat, and you only have one meal a day, uh, then What's, then th this doesn't make much sense. But we also, if you follow your mind, if, if, you, if you live a life of awareness, or you try to, uh, I think you'll find, if you pay attention, it's just part of being mindful, it's not extra. When you eat, you might find, I certainly, I saw it years ago, and it's still true, uh, certain foods incline the mind to be a little bit more dull. Like, it's not just eating too much, but it's also eating certain kinds of foods, and it's individual. One person may not be affected that way. And maybe it's just that day. Uh, certain foods agitate the mind. It gets all excited. Uh, certain foods incline the mind to be light and clear. Well, if you're a meditator, wouldn't you want your diet more and more to go in that direction? Aside from it being nourishing and healthy, uh, look, people will say uh, you can be healthy and, and uh, deluded and suffer a lot, sure. But I had a, a yoga teacher I met him when he was 83, 86, something like that, from India. He was, from, he was the real thing from a long time ago. And he was visiting, he had four disciples in the United States. And I saw him, and I hung out with him. I spent a number of months just traveling with him. And he was teaching Hatha Yoga, which in, he emphasized diet and breathing, postures. He was also a contemplative. He, I stayed in the same room with him. He'd pop up three, four in the morning, go right into meditation for hours. And uh, what he was saying was, by taking care of his body through the, it, it needn't be yoga, but certainly this is what he was doing, yoga through something with the breath, and also especially diet, he said, 
that it's possible, it's possible, he didn't say it was guaranteed, to have a relatively painless old age. And he said his biggest breakthroughs were after the age of 70. And that affected me, and so I've, I've done my best to live that way. Not perfectly, for sure. But, uh, and there's no question, diet is extremely important. Well, as lay people, it's not just taking drugs and intoxicants uh, and shooting up. Those are obvious if you want to be a meditator. I mean, make up your mind. Uh, but if there are subtle ways that affect the quality of, of awareness, why not take advantage of it? Uh, so it seems to me that that is an extension of it that would not have appeared 2,000 years ago, certainly in a monastic community. Okay. Um, uh, I think we should do it now, but l let me, let me uh, make a few suggestions. If you have questions about anything I said, especially a number of them, tonight is not a Q&A kind of evening. It's mainly for people who are pretty sure they want, who want to do something, who want to, uh, who are accepting this, who want to accept the refuges and precepts. If you have a lot of questions, it probably means you're not ready. If you just walked in the door, unless you have some deep yearning or feeling that this is right, sometimes it's correct. Uh, Take your time. There's no hurry. Uh, start practicing. Read some books. Hear a few talks uh, here and other meditation centers. And if the time is right for you, you'll know it. And it can be very, very helpful to put a kind of frame or a container around your practice of having a community of people who practice, of having a teaching to guide you, and uh, assurance that there is a mind state that's available that was experienced by the Buddha, but that is available in 2014 by us here in this country. If you have any doubt whatsoever, don't do it. Now, in terms of the precepts, if you only want to take one or two or three, fine. It, the ones that you feel sincere, I would say the main thing is it's in here, in the heart. If you don't, if it's not real for you in here, why bother? It's just m more baggage, in my opinion. Uh, if you, if it's sincere but you can't fully articulate why, maybe it's okay to give it a try. It may be something that helps nudge your practice forward. I don't know. Each of us has to do it. But if, let's say there's one precept that you know needs a lot of work and you want to, this might help you get on with it by paying attention to it, that's fine. Just take that one. Don't take the others. But taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, if you've had no experience with Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, Unless you had some vision or deep, I don't know, something. Uh, I don't see why you would want to do that. So this evening is for you maybe planting some seeds, which perhaps will be useful for you in the future. I don't know. Okay? So if, if you feel any pressure or if you feel any ambivalence, listen to it. There's no, no hurry. Uh, the time will come where you won't feel that if you're going to do this at all. Okay? Okay, now, um, the Pavarate of Vipassana, I'm not. <laughs> Just why, so if the chanting is not up to your standards, I'm apologizing in advance. It's not up to my standards either, but I don't see anyone around who's going to help me out, so I have to do it. Any good chanters here? What? Harmonize? 
What is this, the Glee Club? <laughs> Go back to college, you know. You want to be a cheerleader? I mean, what? This is a serious place. It's suffering in the end of suffering. We haven't got time for that. Okay. Uh, here's all I mean is, uh, I'm going to intone it as best I can, listen to it, and just follow me. It's printed here, but uh, I'll do my best, and just join me. Uh, I think the artistic isn't as important as understanding the, the meaning of what it is you're agreeing to. Now, if you like, you can kneel, but I, if you're going to take any things, I would put both palms together. It's a nice tradition, uh, and in this case, might help you uh, honor what it is you're about to do with each one. If you don't, if you, some of you can't kneel because of knees or stuff like that, it's okay. Just sit the way you, you are. Okay, so I will intone it, and then please join me. You all set? Namo dasa. Bhagavato. Arahato. Sama sambudasa. Namodasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namodasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa. Homage to the Blessed One, the Noble One, the Fully Awakened One. Buddham Saranam Gachami. Buddham Saranam Gachami. Damang Saranam Gachami. Sangang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Buddham Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Sangang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Buddham Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami
I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. We'll now do the precepts. Panatipata Viramani Sika Padam Samadhiyami Adina Dana Viramani Sika Padam Samadhiyami Kamesu Michakara Veramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami Musavada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami Sura Miraya Majapamada Tana Sura Miraya Viramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami Viramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living creatures. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from using sexual energies unwisely. I undertake the precept to refrain from harmful speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from the misuse of alcohol and drugs and all substances which cloud the mind. A confession. Uh, although I was, you know, playful and mocking a little bit, um, I've given, offered these many times over many years. Uh, it keeps meaning more to me, despite my attitude that you might have picked up on. Let's see, I can miss it. Um, the more I practice, the more precious I realize what it is that I stumbled into. It feels like I stumbled into it. And how grateful I am to uh, some of the very dedicated people, not just teachers, but certainly teachers and people over the years who've helped me. Um, because, uh, and I have some, my sister, who's known me a long time, uh, said I'm unrecognizable and in a good way. Uh, so I hope that in some way you find it to truly be a gem, a triple gem, and that the precepts, which are external, if they haven't begun to seep in internally and where you, uh, it's more and more you begin to use the awareness, which finally is, let's end with this. This is something I do have a glimpse of, and I want to share it with you, 
and I won't make any no jokes. Uh, when we talk about the deathless, or the unborn, or the unconditioned, especially if you say the deathless, that may sound like it's, it, it's so far away from us, ordinary folks sitting here, uh, that it's not within our reach, and that it's just for people who go off to caves and forests, and become monks and nuns, uh, and who give up all kinds of things. Um, it, that isn't true. Uh, another, I prefer the word awareness. Uh, l let me act it out. I already hinted at it, but I'm going to do it again. When the, the practice starts to settle in, when the mind becomes more and more stable and calm, and you can count on it, the body and the mind, you can, it's not just sitting. You can bring it into daily life, which is much more challenging, as I'm sure you know, but it's part of our practice. Uh, it's an ex it's, it is our practice, not part, it is. Um, when the mind becomes that calm and clear, you can see that everything is arising and passing away. It's patently obvious. You don't need to be reminded of the law of impermanence. How can you miss it? No mood stays forever. No thought stays forever. Sounds come and go. Uh, the body keeps going through changes. It's painful. It's not. Uh, it's this way. It's that way. Um, you're optimistic. You're pessimist. Just whatever you want to point to. It's all coming and going, yet more and more, it isn't a mindfulness that is still me in it, being mindful of this sh passing show. At a certain point, that self-conscious observer, which is just me, just the ego, decked out as a yogi, that dissolves and falls away, and there's just clear seeing. Uh, that's what's meant. In other words, everything else comes and goes, but something just knows it. Something, let's say if you say, I was just uh, very, very angry. Awareness is never angry, the, the awareness I'm talking about. It's a clear mirror. That was an ancient image, not a bad one. It sees the anger. And if you can see the anger, you see that the anger arises, operates, falls away. And it's replaced by relief or whatever is next. And as you start to see that, the way in which these moods and mind states and things that we take to be me they start losing their hold over you and falling away and then you can rest in something that as a matter of fact just is. Uh, what do you call it? Suchness or now or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so all of this is designed to put a frame around that process and for some of you, <clears throat> perhaps you're very new to it, <clears throat> I hope it helps you. Uh, but my own personal experience is that it has helped me, but it won't help you unless you do it. In other words, it, it, this is useful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.